Now, it turned out he did some research. There's no evidence he's ever skied here before. <laughs> but the point is, is our position is probably going to irritate some of our clients, some people in our community. But I think you have to have enough courage to take that action and do what you think is right. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 82. Without shared facts, we're sort of screwed. As the U.S. deals with the first pandemic in our new post-truth era, there's parallels that can be drawn between the coronavirus and the climate crisis. Do we listen to the majority of lifelong subject matter experts or a smaller group selling alternative facts or strategic distractions for personal interest? Does the media put equal weight to both groups? How can citizens mobilize effectively? Faking leadership and expertise works okay for as long as there's no urgent need for either one, but eventually those things are required for a successful society, and if they're missing, Global markets realize it even when a percentage of humans cannot. While the coronavirus is an acute example of this reality, the climate crisis is a similar if slower to unfold scenario, and the groups mobilizing around shared facts and subject matter experts are who we will hear from in this episode. Not the folks day trading with some bullshit. A well-attended Protect Our Winters Climate panel was recently held at Sugarbush, hosted by resort president Wynn Smith, Featuring a compelling list of ski industry and environmental experts, as well as valuable audience contributions. You can watch the whole two-hour-plus event if you'd like on Mad River Valley TV's YouTube channel. Episode 82 is my attempt to boil it down for podcast consumption and give it a nice long shelf life. It's a conversation that deserved my time, and I think 97% of you will enjoy the broad climate and resort insights that are shared throughout. Related episodes, hmm, episode 60 was with Mad River Valley realtor and firefighter Doug Mosley. Episode 56 was with World Uphill Record holder Aaron Rice, who is also on this episode's climate panel. And one more shout for episode 78, because yeah, it's all about I-70 and cars and all that stuff that we love. Wintry Mix is skiing's variety show since 2015. Subscribe and catch up. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Wintry Mixcast. When you pump out the pod in your story and tag it, I will send you some free stickers, so go do that. There's also a podcast voicemail and text line, 802-560-5003. Call it and share your truth or sing a song or make some fart noises. Uh, any questions or partnership inquiries can be emailed to alex at wintrymixcast.com. Five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts mean I will owe you a beer in the wild, and they make you a helper. So I appreciate it, gang. Stand by for the goods. This episode of Wintry Mix is supported by the Ten Barrel Brewing Company and Bojo's Colorado Style Pizza.
The Ten Barrel Brewing Company opened a massive brew pub in Denver's River North District in 2017, and their Pray for Snow Winter Seasonal gives 1% of sales to protect our winters. And here comes the spring seasonal, Snake Run Double IPA. Watch out. But they don't just make beer, they make fun, outside, on snow. Track the movements of the beer cat, take in their latest flicks like Hold My Beer and Wax This, or scope the dates of the next hella big air on 10barrel.com. Get to the brew pubs in Boise, Denver, Bend, Portland, and San Diego, and until then, find 10 Barrel in a refrigerated section near you. Or find me, and I'll give you one in the wild. And it's Bojo's time, so let's hear from Cody Bear. Uh, so it was started in a small little place in Idaho Springs across the street from where it is now. We're going to celebrate our 47-year anniversary um, my dad bought it from a couple named Bo and Joanne, and they had had it for less than a year, and he used to work there, sleep there, eat pizza every day, and he used to actually go up to Loveland Ski Area and hand out coupons up there. Come see us at Bojo's. You might see our dad, Chip. You might not, but you'll definitely see some of his goats. And no, no, they're not live goats. They're pictures of goats. Chip Bear, founder of Bojo's, likes to take pictures of goats from Mount Evans, and the pictures end up on the wall. Visit them in Idaho Springs, Arvada, Evergreen, Fort Collins, Longmont, and Steamboat. All right, good evening, everybody. It looks like everybody's ready to go. So thank all of you very much for coming, especially on a Saturday after a really nice ski day and a beautiful day out in the valley. We really do appreciate it. It's an important topic. So I'm going to kick it off very quickly. And the, the point of this evening and the objective this evening is to do a few things. One is to just educate all of us even more about what's going on, to talk about the science, but then very importantly, talk about what we can do individually. You know, sometimes this is overwhelming. You know, we look at and we hear, well, it doesn't make a difference unless China gets rid of coal, unless India gets rid of coal, unless they do this, what's going to make a difference? Well, I think if we all individually do something, all revolutions have started with individuals. All revolutions have started with tiny actions that built collectively that created a change. So what we want to do is talk tonight about what can we individually do that really can make a difference over the, the community as well. And we certainly want to open it up this is a conversation. We want to hear your questions. We want to hear your opinions. So it is meant to be a really interactive session. So I'm really blessed to have four wonderful people on the panel. Um, Aaron Rice, who grew up in Massachusetts. He moved west for a long period of time. He was one of the first recipients of the Flying Ryan Scholarship, which he used to pursue his passion. And if you read the press release, you'll know that this guy, unaided by any lift, did 2.5 million of vertical, set an all-time record for vertical. Yeah. And, and what's even better is he's moved back to Vermont, lives in Stowe, and now works for an environmental consulting company in uh, Montpelier, right? So Aaron, uh, we're really fortunate to have really one of the most knowledgeable climatologists, uh, Professor Cameron Wake from the University of New Hampshire. He's done a lot of studies. He's done some terrific research. He really knows what he's talking about, and I think we're all going to learn a lot from him. Uh, Heather Furman 
who is the state director of the Nature Conservancy of Vermont and is also dynamic and is going to be talking about what the Nature Conservancy's role is in the climate crisis. I think most of you know the Nature Conservancy has done wonderful things over the years in terms of conserving land, wetlands, water, but now at the national level and the Vermont level has really focused itself on what can it do for climate change and we'll be talking about some of the nature-based solutions to the climate crisis as well. And then finally, David Perry. David Perry is uh, Director of Sustainability at Altera. As you know, Altera is the new owner of Sugarbush. Uh, David spent many years before Altera was formed two years ago at Aspen Company. Aspen has been the leader in the ski industry of really focusing on environment, on the climate crisis, on sustainability. So he brings that knowledge to Altera, and he'll be talking about what Altera is doing, what it can do, and how it's going to support this initiative as well. So we're going to start off with just a a quick, a quick video about POW. The outdoor community, the outdoor knows, community the knows the power of margins. Holy shit. Oh, she almost just got swept. The seemingly small efforts made at just the right moments carry enough weight to tip the scale from failure to success. Going for her first win of the season, and it's Jesse Diggins of the United States. These are the margins that define our community. More than 15,000 scientists are sounding an alarm about climate change. Environmental and political history are also made at the margins. 77,000 votes in key districts swung the 2016 presidential election. Three Senate votes opened the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling. <clears throat> to solve the climate crisis, the world needs our community. It's the sum of our small efforts where we turn our passion into purpose and deliver climate victories where they're needed most. That act now, you'll see that again at the end, but this is a call to action on the part of Protect Our Winners. So now it's time to do a little homework, take a look at the facts and the science, and Cameron, thank you again for being here. Uh, well, thanks so much for uh, having me. I, I do want to start with a slide that shows you uh, the lifelong love affair that I've had uh, with snow and ice. Uh, I was one of that early cadre. You'll see there my old Karoo skis, double camber, skiing in the backcountry in the Canadian Rockies with like the best pair of double Merrill boots that were ever made that changed the sport. Uh, uh, but some other, uh, most recently, uh, some pictures from a Denali where we've been, went skiing and, and drilled some ice core. Uh, but I really want to talk to you about the science uh, of climate change. And I want to start with three things, just quickly. The first is that climate changes. It always has and always will. We're in a climate crisis now. But there is an extensive and ever-growing body of scientific evidence that shows that humans are the main driver of that change. And once you acknowledge that, you realize the following is true. The future climate is literally in our hands. The climate that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren inherit depend upon the actions we take today. The second point uh, is that um, we really have to move uh, from the tyranny of or to the opportunity of and. We have to stop having this conversation about the economy versus the environment. I think we've transitioned from that a long time ago across much of New England, but we really have to take that across the entire country. And it's the economy and the environment, and I think that being here at Sugarbush is a fantastic example of that. And then third, uh, I just want to share that uh, I've been working on this topic for 30 years, 
and that it is a profoundly moral issue for me now because it's those who are most vulnerable who are going to suffer the most. So it's really important for all of us to act, not only for the sports and the lifestyle that we love, but really for all of those vulnerable people. All right, so now I'm going to talk about science. Uh, uh, boiled down 30 years of climate science research, 30 years of climate science research boiled down into 12 words, right? It's real, it's us, scientists agree, it's bad, we can fix it. If you leave with nothing else from tonight, leave with that, tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I gotta go now. <laughs> uh, I, I did want to share uh, a little bit of data with you. So. Um, uh, what's really shocking, when we started looking into the meteorological records, we found that it's really our winters that are warming the most fastest, so uh, the, the most rapidly, excuse me. So here's a plot of winter warming. You can see the mid-latitudes, those lo lots of dark reds. That's 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit per decade for the last five decades. You do your math, that's 8 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So we've been warming 7 to 8 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit the last 50 years in our winters. It's 2 to three times the rate of global warming, and it's really impacted uh, the sport that we love. Another way to show the same data, this is a plot specifically for uh, Burlington, New Hampshire, a very place-specific, right? Same time period, we've seen an increase in seven degrees Fahrenheit. That is a significant change in temperature that we've already experienced. Um, next couple slides didn't work out too well, so just skip to this one. Uh, I have a colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Professor Alex Contasta and Liz Burakowski, who've been working on a whole range of different indicators. And this is one in particular that I thought uh, might uh, be of interest to you. So they looked at the number of snowmaking days, and they took a very conservative approach to this and said, you're making more snow when it's colder, so they've used the minus five degrees Celsius, which in the scientific literature is a, is a common threshold. You snowmakers in the audience, you can tell me if that's correct or not. But we're using number of nights when it's uh, below five degrees centigrade. And then what the red dots show you, uh, the red dots and the blue dots, are the rate of change per decade in number of days. So if you look at the entire Northeast, right, we've seen a decrease of two days per decade in the number of days that we can make snow. So over, this is over a hundred years. So, right? We've seen a, uh, sorry, per decade, so it's 10 decades. So 10 times two, we've seen 20 to 25 day decrease in the number of snowmaking days. That's true for snow on ground days. That's true for frost days. That's true for really cold days. Any winter indicator that you look at, you see a significant change, and the rate of that change has increased since 1970. Uh, an another uh, piece of work that uh, Alex and her colleagues are doing are this notion called uh, winter weather whiplash. Uh, I'm providing you with that definition up there, but you all know what it is. These really rapid, unexpected changes in winter when we pass through uh, the 32 degree Fahrenheit or zero Celsius isotherm and something happens. We get a big rainstorm or we get a, a huge uh, uh, winter thaw and winter warming. Uh, the one that I remember the most is sort of Snowtober, which happened in right October in 2011. All of you in the younger generation here are going to know that because that's when Halloween got cancelled. 
Um, and what we're seeing is we're beginning to define these because these winter weather whiplash events have really important impacts, not only on the snow sports industry, but on our economy uh, writ large. And they have really big impacts on our ecosystems that perhaps I will hear a little bit more about. But this is one of the unexpected uh, impacts is we're not just seeing a general warming, we're seeing an increase in these number of really extreme events that really affect us in a significant way. Uh, I also wanted to bring up my colleague, uh, Liz Burakowski, who's really uh, taken this on and has become a scientist working very closely with POW and, and over the course of the past decade has published uh, what I would argue are two very influential reports that look at the impact of climate change on uh, winter recreation with a specific focus on uh, the sports industry, uh, sorry, the skiing industry. And uh, these are easy to find online. You can find them on uh, the POW website. But just, I, I wanna share one result uh, from this report. When you look over the last 20 years and you look at the five best years in each individual state in terms of sort of amount of snowfall and cold temperatures, you'll see that in those top five years, Revenues are above average by almost $700 million, and uh, there's an increase in almost 12,000 jobs across the country. When you look at the five bottom years, we see a decrease in a billion dollars of revenue and a decrease in 17,000 jobs. This is not just something that uh, you know, presents some hardships and I can't get as many skier days as I'd like to get. There's some real impacts on these economies. And one of the really important points the reports make is that these are economies that tend to be in rural areas and so really depend upon these, these jobs and these incomes. So there's some significant impact not only for the sport but for the communities uh, that they live in. All right, everybody take a deep breath. You're all gonna understand this diagram in a, in a minute or two. <laughs> so one of the things that we love to do as scientists is try to answer this question, what is our climate going to be like in the future? And remember I started by saying the future climate is literally in our hands. So in order to project future climate, we have to know what human beings are gonna do and what our economy is going to do, which is essentially impossible. So what scientists do is actually we frame this by using different scenarios. And in this case, we use emission scenarios. So that's a fancy word. Just think about them as plausible storylines. These are not things that will happen. These are things that could happen. So up here, you've got the RCP 4.5. That's a lower global emissions scenario. If I had more time, I'd walk you through it all, but I don't. And then the RCP 8.5 is the higher emissions scenario. Think of one higher emissions scenario, business as usual, we keep relying upon fossil fuels. Lower emissions scenarios, we transition pretty rapidly to renewable energies, energy efficiency, and battery storage. So uh, you'll see all the thin lines in the back as we downscaled lots of global climate models. We use, we use those emissions as input to global climate models and we downscale that to the northeast. All those skinny lines are all the different models. The thick lines are the ones you should focus on and they represent the ensemble mean, which is how scientists think about this. Run lots of models, take the mean and see what it tells us. So a couple really important things. You see the black line is actual, and the gray line in back here is what the models come out with. We're doing a really good job modeling, in this case, average wintertime minimum temperatures. Right? Agree? We're not getting the variability because we're taking an ensemble mean. Out here, by 2050, 2055, there's no difference in temperature between the high emissions and the low emissions scenario. What does that tell you? That's an amount of warming that we are committed to. We cannot get away from that amount of warming, so we better start learning how to adapt to a different climate. 
But the difference out at 2100 between the two emission scenarios is stark. And the difference in terms of wintertime sports is that the higher emission scenario, we probably don't have much in the way of wintertime recreation outside with snow and ice. On the lower emission scenario, we can probably preserve it, especially in northern New England. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be dramatic, but that's what is at stake. And we have to turn this around in terms of reducing global emissions in order to keep the industry that we love. Uh, this is a, another really data-rich uh, last couple of slides here, but we've also taken those same models and we looked at how early is the snow going to disappear across uh, the northeast. So these colors down here represent the snow disappearance date. So this is February 1 in the really dark blues. So you don't like the dark blues. Over there in the light greens, that's May 31, you like those, right? I'm assuming you all like snow. <laughs> all right. So you like the light greens. So here it is, uh, April 12th, that's the average from 1980 to 2050, that's the average for uh, the entire region shown here. So under that lower emissions scenario, by the end of the century, down here, right, 2070 to 2099, what we see is that uh, the snow disappears two weeks earlier. That's the low emissions scenario, that's the best we can hope for, right? Under the higher emission scenario, we see that snow leaving three weeks earlier on average, which means in a really bad year, it would be like six weeks or two months earlier. So again, I just wanted to provide you, this is the future of snow, and I'm telling you what the future of snow is, and it depends on the actions that we take here in, at Sugarbush, here in New England, here in the United States, and globally, that's really going to dictate what happens to our winter sports. So this is my last slide. I think we're going to get into this discussion later. But the question is, what do we do about it? Well, we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and we have to adapt, and we have to do it both at the same time. I am actually am always a glass is half full or better, completely full. Um, that climate change is the innovation opportunity for the 21st century. We just have to have the political will to get forward and move with it. And I would argue that we need actions at multiple spatial scales and, and multiple institutional levels. So we have to act in cities and towns, in the state, regionally and country. We have to act as individuals, which is how WIN has set this up, but our nonprofits, our business and investment and in government also need to act. We need everybody to be pulling in the same direction if we're going to sort of address the dramatic change that needs to happen. Cameron, thank you. Uh, so you made a very good point. You know, it's either good for the economy or good for the environment, right? And that's no longer the debate. And I think more and more businesses clearly understand that. So let me just give you, share a few things about how this is impacting Sugarbush already. So a lot of people ask me, so are you seeing a shorter season? And I'm saying, no, we had a 162-day season last year. We'll have 156 this year only because we opened six days later because of Thanksgiving. So are you seeing less snow? Well, three years ago, we had our fifth worst snowfall. Two years ago, we had our second best by only half an inch. Last year, it was average. So we look at it, no, we're not really. But that's covering up the issue because we're lucky to be further north, higher elevation. What we are seeing is what Cameron alluded to is much greater volatility. And how is that impacting us? Well, in many ways. So this year, we've had five roller coaster events so far. We always have January thaws. You know that. We've been around here. But five by this time of year, that's unusual. 
We may have a sixth next week. So what does that do? It means we make snow, we lose snow, we make snow, we lose snow. That costs money. That puts stress on the environment. We have to make snow, but it's creating additional challenges to doing that. The intensity of the winds you know, means we're going to be on wind hold more, we're going to have damage. This year we had to spend $400,000 on something that nobody here will appreciate because you can't see it. Instead of buying a new groomer for $400,000, we decided we needed to bury the power lines that went from the base area to mid-mountain to power our upper lifts in our snowmaking. Why? Because we can't risk a tree coming down in the middle of Christmas or this week and being out of business. So we buried the power lines. That's a pure reflection of the volatility we're seeing. We've had, and you've all experienced this, maybe even worse than we have, you have, we've had 200-year floods in the last 25 years. How did it impact us? It washed out our snowmaking pond. Both times the river came, took out the uphill dam, flowed the river in, it stopped, and silt came down. We had to drain the pond, take out tons of silt at a cost of about a million dollars. Two and a half groomers uninsured. So what are we doing? Well, we're planning on a secondary pond out of the flood plain in case that happens. What's the cost to that? I don't know, but it's millions. The increased weather and rain we're seeing is increasing the flow of the tributaries down into the Mad River. So that's undermining our current dam. Two summers ago, we had to reinforce the foundation. Last year, we saw it actually breach under the dam. We're seeing increased ice flows. When ice flows comes at a fixed dam, you can imagine what happens. So now we're looking at a new project to replace the dam with an inflatable dam so that if we see the ice flows, it can be deflated then reflated. That's a cool million dollars. So yeah, climate change has woken us up because if we don't do something about it, it's creating enormous cost and risk to the business. So I think that's why, Cameron, you're seeing more businesses understand not only are we doing the right thing, but we better do it or we're not going to be a sustainable business. So let's turn to uh, nature-based solutions. And Heather, love to hear from you. Sure. Thank you, Wynn. And thank you for those powerful numbers and those powerful stories to kick us off. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the Nature Conservancy and the role that we see nature playing in helping us address the climate crisis. And, you know, we all love nature. I ski, I hike, I used to do a lot of rock climbing, I used to do a lot of trail running, I, I like to be out there in nature. This, right now I'm turning my attention to um, sourcing my food locally and I've been doing a lot of hunting and fishing. And there's something that's really wrong about being out there in November in your hunter plaid and it's 60 degrees and there's ticks crawling up your leg and there's no snow to track deer. You know something is wrong then, right? So I feel really lucky that I get to wake up every morning and go to work for an organization that is doing everything that we possibly can to address climate change. So a little bit about the Nature Conservancy for those of you who are not familiar with us. We are in fact the largest environmental nonprofit in the world. Um, we are in, we have a chapter in all 50 states and 79 countries around the world. We have over 4,000 employees. We work on land, water, climate issues. Um, this year we are celebrating here in Vermont, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary and um, we have protected a little over 300,000 acres of land in some of the most iconic places 
places that you might be familiar with, Green River Reservoir, Camel's Hump, have been part of the work that we have done over the 60-year history. We're known for our land protection work. But now, with the imperative of climate change, we need to bring together science and policy and on-the-ground projects to solve these big environmental challenges. So I'm going to set a little context for you from the perspective of nature. And it's not great. It's really kind of dire, as a matter of fact. If you think you are seeing fewer birds in the sky since the 1970s, it's because you're seeing fewer birds in the sky since the 1970s. We have lost 3 billion birds since 1970. There's an abundance crisis, not just a threatened and endangered species crisis, but an abundance crisis. All of these uh, um, ecosystems that you see here have lost a significant percentage on the planet. And we're, as a result, we're losing habitat, we're losing species. Mammals have declined by 82%. Butterfly abundance is down 35% over 40 years. We're losing our insects. You've probably read about that. And of course, um, and our, our amphibians are threatened. 30% are now threatened or endangered. So there's a real crisis going on. The number that always really just sticks me is that humans and their livestock now make up 96% of the biomass on Earth. Wildlife, only 4%. That's a dramatic change in 40 years. So then you layer on climate change, right? This is my road, actually. I live in Jericho Center, Vermont, and this was not Tropical Storm Irene. This was actually a rain event that happened um, the spring before. And we are now seeing, on average, two major flood events per year in Vermont. Between 2011 and 2020, there were 17 declared natural disasters, which is three times the previous decade. Vermont, little Vermont, is now spending nearly $70 million a year on repairs to public infrastructure due to flooding, and that doesn't even include the private investment like Wynn spoke of um, with the repairs to his snowmaking pond. So we don't have that kind of money to continue to invest in public infrastructure due to these floodings. We have to take action. Another statistic, species movement. Species are moving their ranges north. This is a, a animation that was done by Nature Conservancy scientists to show the projected path of species movement as the climate changes. Um, species are moving 11 miles north and 30 feet in elevation each decade, which is two to three times faster than the normal rate of species movement. We're seeing a spike in disease. And for both human and wildlife communities, this is not good. We see Lyme disease. We haven't had ticks like we have now. The winter ticks is decimating our moose population in the Northeast Kingdom, and it it's, can be a really sad situation. So that's the bad news. I got a little bit of good news for you. If we choose to act, nature actually does offer us solutions. Um, 
We've been degrading our habitats. The slide that I showed you earlier showed habitat loss around the world. If we begin to restore, protect, and restore our forests, stop the habitat loss, nature can provide more than a third of the carbon reductions needed to keep global warming below two degrees Celsius. That is incredible. By restoring our rivers, getting our development out of our floodplains, folks, this is one of the most important things. If you are passionate about climate change, you are, I know here in the Mad River Valley, we've seen huge flooding. Getting our development out of the floodplains is one of the most important things we can do. It re reduces human hazards, it reduces infrastructure damage, and reduces costs. And if you're a Vermonter, you probably have heard the, uh, the study about the study that was done in Middlebury a number of years ago after Tropical Storm Irene. Just upstream from Middlebury is the Otter Creek Swamps, and the Nature Conservancy played a pretty significant role in conserving Otter Creek Swamps. That saved that community nearly $2 million in damages because those wetlands worked like a big sponge to absorb those floodwaters. They saw much less damage than many other surrounding communities. So the other thing that we can do, if we're moving in the right direction when we think about how nature connects us, if we can support denser development and keep our forest and habitats connected, it allows for those forest e economies to thrive, it allows for species movement as the climate changes, and it, of course, it gives us a place to play. And in order to maximize all that nature can do to store carbon, to filter our, our water and, and, and store floodwaters, to give us wild, wildlife and wild places to recreate, we need to know where to prioritize our land protection. And this is some of the primary work that the Nature Conservancy is doing right now, helping to identify those places that give us a connected and resilient landscape. And if we all work together to support this, we're sharing this map with our state government partners, our conservation, our land trust partners all over the country. This resilience analysis has been done for the entire country. We can, as Cameron said, we can make a difference in turning the needle on climate change. So I personally, one of the favorite things that I like to do when I'm out in the woods, I want to see wildlife. That is really central to who I am. It defines my life. I want to see wildlife out there. And I have a responsibility to those critters. We have done this damage to the planet. We can repair the damage to the planet. Nature can be a safety net for all of us. And if nature can thrive, then people are going to thrive too. Thank you, Heather. You know, Heather mentioned um, the value of healthy forests, for example. I think one of the assets we have in Vermont is we really do have some healthy forests. You know, I learned at the Nature Conservancy meeting the other day that, if I'm correct, we're sort of medium growth now because we were deforested, you know, in the early part of the century. Now we've got medium growth, which is actually, as what Jim Shallow was saying, one of the best things for carbon absorption. So right now, I think in Vermont, our forests are absorbing 40 to 50 percent of our carbon emissions, and that can be a lot more. But I think we have to really make sure that we're preserving those forests, we keep them healthy, and that we're also looking at opportunities to reforest. One statistic that um, the Nature Conservancy gave me a few weeks ago 
is a healthy forest, one acre of a healthy forest, absorbs the carbon emissions of 27 cars driven an entire year. So just take that factoid. Gives you an idea of what that really does do. So David, let's turn to you, last but not least. You've got this exalted title of Director of Sustainability at Altera. So what does that mean, and what are you doing, and what can you be doing in the future? Thanks, Wynn, and uh, thanks to the panel. I mean, it's, it's an honor to be here with uh, the knowledgeable people I'm sharing the stage with. And uh, a few people that I talked to before we started in the audience, we have a very knowledgeable audience here tonight, too, and I'm looking forward to your questions and comments, too, as well. So, you know, for me, um, we started this new company called Altera. We're two and a half years old, and I was the founding chief operating officer, president of that company. And uh, I deliberately put my hand up to change my job uh, last August as we were growing. We split my job into three, my former job into three parts. And I, didn't, I said, I don't want to do the day-to-day -day operations anymore. I want to follow my passion. And I've been a passionate skier my whole life and been fortunate enough to work in the mountain resort business my whole life. Uh, but my real passion now, of course, is, is really tackling the climate crisis that we're in now and trying to do what I can in my position in business uh, to move the needle in any way possible. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I'm Executive Vice President of Sustainability and Special Projects at Altera. Uh, and of course, Sugarbush is the newest member of the Altera family. You know, we now own and operate 15 ski resorts, uh, plus Canadian Mountain Holidays, the largest heli ski operator in the world. And so, you know, my path has been a little bit uh, different, but not dissimilar from many of you maybe in this valley. I, I live out west, so I have a western point of view, uh, although I was born in a small gold mining town in northern Ontario, Canada, uh, and so, and, and, and moved around a lot as a kid. But you know, when I listen to uh, Cameron talk and see the science on this board and, and to listen to the panel put this, the facts and figures forward, it's like a gut punch for me. Is it like that for you? Like it just brings it vividly to life once again. And you know, it, it just reinforces the urgency of now that what we have to do. And so the other reason I'm doing this, the reason is my passion, I think I share that with a lot of people in this room, is uh, I'm doing this for my kids. You know, I've got two daughters in their early 20s. And, you know, when I worked as a senior executive at Skiarius in Aspen for 16 years and Whistler Blackcomb for 18 years, and as my kids are growing up, they'd ask me, Dad, what do you do when you go to work? And I'd tell them as well. And they would tell their friends. I finally overheard them say to their friends what their dad does for work. And I said, what does your dad do? And they said, he goes to meetings. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always in a meeting. And so now my, my girls... Uh, are actually more proud of the work that I'm tackling now on sustainability and trying to tackle this climate tr crisis of all the jobs I've had in my life. So that makes me proud as a father, uh, but also is an illustration of the responsibility that I feel and I think all of you in this room feel to do something now. Um, you know, we in this, that love to ski and ride and live in the outdoors, like all of us, I think, in this room, we truly are the canaries in the coal mine uh, for climate change. And I thought about that analogy. It's really, it's an un unfortunate but apropos analogy, right? Canaries, cute little yellow birds that used to, miners used to put in coal mines that died when they breathed in methane, a greenhouse gas. <laughs> and now we, here we are in, in these beautiful outdoor mountain environments, and we know exactly what's going on. We are the canaries in, not in coal mines, but in the mountains and in the outdoors. Uh, we're, we're seeing it and we feel it. When we see the stats on the screen, we know they're true because we've witnessed the change. 
and we feel the change. I certainly have in the places I've lived. Uh, you know, in the mountains of Aspen, you know, I lived at 8,000 feet, and the mountains go up from there. And stats on, on the shortening of winter and the rising temperatures are, are very obvious. Uh, in Aspen, uh, it, just to illustrate the point, uh, you talked about loss of snowmaking days. Uh, we, we used to track it, and we still track it, as how many days the temperature drops below um, freezing in a 24-hour cycle. So it's sim similar measurement. And that number of days has reduced by one day per year for the last 20 to 25 years since we've been closely tracking it. So it, basically winter in, in the Aspen area is shortening by one day per year. And that's fast. That's really fast. Now, does it mean that skiing and winter is going away? No, it doesn't. We're adapting. Uh, we're making more snow. We're getting more efficient at it. Uh, we're doing better summer grooming. So skiing is still very much alive, and I'm optimistic it will continue to be that way. But you know, what we did when I was out west at Aspen Skiing Company is we tried to figure out what we could do with our own operation to make our contribution, because otherwise we're just hypocrites. We could stand up and shout about climate change, and here we are enjoying the outdoors and skiing and, and using a lot of energy to run snowmaking and lifts and buildings in pristine mountain environments. So we're hypocrites, right? So what are you doing about it? We used to get asked that all the time. So we tried to put up wind turbines. So they blew over because the wind was too volatile because of climate change. Uh, literally, the test tower blew over twice. Uh, we couldn't do wind turbines at Snowmass. Uh, we put in solar uh, systems down the valley. And, yes, there's a lot of sun in Colorado. Those were helpful, but not big enough. Uh, we tried microhydro plants to reverse our snowmaking pipes in the spring so they could run a little, you know, turn, make some electricity. We tried everything. It wasn't enough, right? We weren't offsetting our use. We were still very dirty in our energy use. So we literally used the coal, the, the canary in the coal mine analogy and, and, and got in, inventive. Uh, we figured out that there was some big, huge underground coal mines about 30 miles away from Aspen uh, that were still in operation. Some of them were, some of them were not. And of course, they had extensive systems to vent the methane out of those mine shafts so the miners could work. And it was just being vented in the atmosphere as a really, really bad greenhouse gas. We approached the mines and said, can we take your methane and run it through generators to create electricity? And of course, the byproduct is CO2, which is much less potent than greenhouse gas. The net benefit was three times our carbon footprint and 100% of the electricity use of Aspen Skiing Company in an annual, on an annual basis, just by tapping the methane, the waste methane in the mines 30 miles away. We did that seven years ago. It cost us $5.6 million, and it even had a financial return. We have an 11% IRR on that little investment. So it just shows that if you put your nose to the grindstone and get innovative and think outside the box, there are solutions that even we can make as ski area operators. You know, I'm really, really proud of what Sugarbush is doing now and what the state of Vermont is doing. You're way ahead of a lot of the jurisdictions that we're doing business in right now. Uh, I've seen, I'm optimistic about what's happening in Utah uh, with Rocky Mountain Power and the state committing to, you know, greening their energy grid. Um, optimistic about what's happening in Colorado where, frankly, coal-fired power state, right? Now about 76% of the power still comes from, from coal in Colorado. It's, it's sad, but, it, but at least people are waking up to it and, and making rapid changes. Um, so, you know, when I think about what we can do at Altera now that, uh, you know, Sugarbush is part of our family, is that we have a responsibility and we have a deep commitment to do everything in our power. 
Uh, and I have sort of three legs to the stool that I'm rolling out across the entire company uh, in North America and beyond. Number one is, to, I call it green our own house, which is take care of things operationally, be efficient, you know, make sure we're doing the lighting retrofits and we're getting efficient snowmaking and being responsible stewards of, of our land and our forests and, and, and everything else and being really as clean on energy as possible. Number two is speak with one voice, and that's why I'm so impressed by the audience here tonight. Because by speaking with one voice, it's not just the staff and the operators and the owners of the ski resort, it's the community that surrounds the ski resort and the people that come to visit us as guests. I want all of us to be speaking with one voice on the climate crisis issue, and that's why I'm impressed with the turnout here tonight. And the third leg of our stool is to take what we've done, or, you know, to tackle the hypocrisy, uh, unite around one voice, and then advocate for change. That's what we need to do, and that's what all of us need to do. And we need to ask ourselves exactly what can each of us do. I think we'll get into that more as, as the evening goes on. But as skiers and outdoor enthusiasts we, enthusiasts, we are uniquely qualified, actually, to speak with a credible voice. You know, and how many of you in the room have written a letter to your congressional representation to taking action on climate policy in the last year or two? That's actually pretty good. That's better than any audience I've seen. So, but it's not enough, okay? Those of you who haven't, you can, it's so easy to do, right? There's even form letters on the Protect Our Winters website about sending it to your congressional representatives. You can sign that and you can email it in because they need to hear the voice. I've been to Washington, D.C. each of the last two years on a mission to talk to our, our lawmakers to try and advocate for action on, on climate policy. And we know that you know, there's a lot of people who are receptive to that, but there's a whole bunch of people that are afraid to talk about it and afraid to take action in, in Congress. And you know what? They tell me, whether it's true or not, in their offices with their staff is that they're not hearing from their constituents enough that this is an important issue. And I went, really? Oh my gosh, okay. Let's get on that, okay? Skiers and snowboarders and outdoor enthusiasts, our voice really matters. And writing letters and making phone calls to con congressional leaders really matters. We can do that and we can speak with a credible voice. Um, I remain optimistic about the future. I really, really do. Because otherwise, what do you do? Do you give up? Well, I'm not ready to give up. Are you ready to give up? No? Are we going to tackle this thing? I think we are, okay? And we've got leaders on the stage tonight, and we've got a lot of will. We need to translate that will into political will to make policy changes and then really take action. So I'm proud to be part of it, and, uh, and here we go. The future is now. Well said. David, thank you. That's impressive. Um, it's actually a good segue into what I'd like to do now is talk a little bit more about what we can do. So let, let's start up here on the stage. You know, what, what can Sugarbush do? Well, I am proud that we've started to do a lot, and we can certainly do a lot more. Uh, in the last number of years, we've really focused on the thing that we thought had the biggest impact, and that is energy efficiency. You know, David mentioned, you know, we're, we're a big user of energy. Uh, we're not going to go back and not use energy. We're not, we can't not make snow. But unless several years by the investments we've made, and thanks to Energy Efficiency Vermont, we couldn't have done it without that. You know, we did get some, I like to say we got our money back because we paid into it, but nevertheless, it was an agency that helped us. We've been able to reduce our usage of electricity kilowatt hours by 34%. So that's significant, yeah. And 
it's good business because I'm paying less to Mary Powell or was paying less to Mary Powell, paying less to the current Mary at Green Mountain Power. So it's good for the environment, it's good for business. And frankly, the quality of the snow is better too. So it's really a triple win. You know, we try to do little things, whether it's composting, you know, helping our, our guests understand how to recycle, which is complicated. You know, you figure out, is the coffee cup, you know, in the landfill, is the cup in the recyclable, is the holder? You know, it's really complicated. So this year, thanks to people like Margot's suggestion, we have people actually collecting the trays. We've added extra labor costs, but we've reduced kind of the pollution we're putting into the recycling and composting bins. We've added a lot of EV chargers around here, Lincoln Peak, Mad River, to, you know, again, encourage and motivate people to use electric vehicles getting here. You know, we try to encourage people to use the public transportation instead of driving a single person per car here. Little things like that. You know, we're hoping one day that those groomers that went by that operate on diesel, you know, we do use biodiesel, but hopefully we'll get an electric diesel or hybrid. And right now the technology isn't there that we're willing to make that investment, but hopefully that will be there over time. You know, we've partnered with solar developers, Green Mountain, um, Green Lantern, and they've developed five solar fields generating about 2.5 megs of power. We've used our, our net metering to allow that to happen, and we're working with Mad River Solar here in the valley to put another solar field in one of our parking lots. So a lot of cumulative things like that. That's what we've been trying to do. Now, what I'd like to do now is, you know, let's talk about individually. So what can we individually do that can make a difference and really help address this crisis? And maybe, Cameron, let me start with you, because you started to talk a little bit about that. Um, all right, so uh, you can imagine I, I think about this a lot. And so uh, each of you in the audience might think I'm gonna say, like, buy an electric car or, or change a light bulb, but here's the thing that I, I think we do not think about enough is I, I'm gonna ask you to interrogate your investments. Amen. And the reason is that, um, and there's two really important reasons for that. One is, I should preface this by saying, don't ever take investment advice from a climate scientist. <laughs> uh, but ExxonMobil's losing a lot of money, and Tesla is not, right? So. Uh, we need to fund the revolution that's going to be uh, the energy efficiency revolution, the electric car revolution, the generating wind power in the Gulf of Maine revolution, the increasing housing density and transit revolution. That's all going to take trillions of dollars. And let's not wait for our government to get on board. Let's create that investment by where we put our money. Uh, at the same time, it turns out, right, you're going to make more money if you're in green investments. Uh, I'll just share one story. So I do a lot of work at the University of New Hampshire on this. We transitioned a quarter of our endowment to ESG investments, environmental, social, and governance positive screens. And the rate of return over uh, the last year was 21% for those investments. It was 16% for the rest of our, uh, our investment. Uh, guess who's looking pretty smart on the investment side right now? Um, uh, uh, so, and then one other piece I would add uh, that it, it is an individual action, but I think it's really important at an institutional level. So it's wonderful that, that Sugarbush has the leadership that it has to do the things it wants to do. Uh, let's say not all of our institutions have that. So not only is it about changing your own life and reducing your emissions in your home and in the, your transportation, and not doing it all at once, right? You do it over time, but really it's taking that knowledge and then taking it to your 
institution and getting them to change. So University of New Hampshire, we've reduced our emissions 50% over the last 20 years, while we've doubled the amount of students that we house on campus, and we are going to be net zero emissions by 2050. That's great, thank you. You know, Cameron is absolutely right. I spent more of my life in the investment world than in the snow world, but clearly the trend in the investment world is towards ESG investing. And if you take a look, as Cameron said, at the actual performance of those funds now, they're actually doing very well. And that's a conversation you can have if you have a 401k with your investment advisor. Clearly, the young people are on this much more than people my generation, but it is a growing trend that's going to have, a, I think, a big difference. Let's talk about action, because that's the other thing that, you know, David mentioned he was in Washington. Um, you know, we've decided at Sugarbush to get more actively involved as well in advocation. And, you know, you do it a little bit with trepidation because you don't want to be political. You don't want to vote for Republicans or Democrats, you know, because our audience is composed of all types of people. But I think more and more we've realized that we do have to take a stand. And not everybody's going to like it. So I did testify in favor of the Global Warming Solutions Act that just passed the House here. And I, and, and, and I did write an op-ed as a follow-up. So yesterday I'm sitting in my office and I got a call from somebody and I looked at it. You know, everything's identified so you know who's calling. It was 603 New Hampshire. I figured it's a client. I picked it up, I said, hi, Wynn Smith. He said, hi, this is, I'll use the name John. You're too liberal for me. <laughs> I have never been called too liberal. <laughs> so I'm saying, excuse me? He said, I don't like the letter you wrote. He said, I'm never going to ski at Sugarbush again. I said, do you mean the letter on the environment? Yes, I've been plowing for 50 years. This is all bullshit. You know, I've seen this come and go. I said, well, excuse me, I respect your opinion, but I respectfully disagree, and I'm sorry I'm not going to ski here anymore. Now, it turned out I did some research. There's no evidence he's ever skied here before. <laughs> but the point, the, point, the point is, is our position is probably going to irritate some of our clients, some people in our community. But I think you have to have enough courage to take that action and do what you think is right, even if it irritates some people. So, so now, let's talk about advocacy. POW is really pushing this. So what can everybody do here, and what is POW encouraging everybody to do? So listening to all this, I definitely start feeling overwhelmed, and I'm, I'm guessing some other people in the audience feel similarly. I have done personal changes, um, but it feels like my personal change might not solve the problem, and I don't have any money to change where it's invested. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I think about what can I do that's going to affect change in a bigger scale. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, is looking towards the people with the power. Um, and that's your elected officials. Um, and so whether that's casting your vote when the time comes for somebody that is strong against climate, uh, climate change, or whether that's calling your representative um, and telling them to support the, the climate change bill that just passed. I think that's how individuals can group together and really make change. And we do live in an amazing democracy where everybody's vote counts. Um, and so for me, that's how I, I see the biggest change that we can all make. And we just filled this whole room. Um, and it really doesn't take that many people. Um, you're looking at elections right now in battleground states where 
the elections are swinging by a few thousand votes. If you can get everybody to get out, and a lot of people already feel strongly, but they're not necessarily getting out there and, and voting on the day. So I think that's the biggest place. Yeah. So do we have anybody from the audience? Question, comment? Yes, please. Can we have a microphone over there? Yeah, and there are so many good organizations. You know, another one that's uh, really here in, in Vermont and in the Valley is 1% for the Planet. Uh, so it's a great way. And 1% for the Planet, you know, you really choose who you donate with. You can commit as a business to, you know, reserving 1% of your revenue. It doesn't have to be an entire company. In our case, it's our food and beverage. But then you can choose what environmental organization you choose to give to. And so a great flexibility. Question. Wayne, quick question on how we can better educate visitors at this mountain. Because I feel like the water bubbler in the back was a great change with the red cups, people coming, taking the red cups. This year it's changed to, at one point it was disposable cups, and it went to the water bubbler. Looks like there's disposable cups back, but I feel like tying that story into what's happening with the climate, it, it, people, people come away with, hey, this is something that this mountain's doing. Either they support or they don't, but back to stepping up, I feel like that 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 instills that level of confidence in this mountain. Yeah, thank you. And actually, that's sort of a great story. I'll take a, a moment and talk about that because we have a, um, a safety, environmental, and wellness committee that's made up of employees from all of our areas. And each year, they come up with different goals in terms of safety, environment, and wellness. So a few years ago, they said instead of you know having people just buy bottled water and you know let's use our own water. It's free, but we'll put out red cups, and that way you know they don't have disposable cups. It's great. They're not going to the landfill. And then what we found is that was a great idea, but it was putting an incredible burden on our food and beverage people. They were collecting those cups, you know, they were washing the cups, they were using more energy. So this summer, we said, well, let's change. We're going to, you know, use cups instead of, you know, disposable. And we wanted to find compostable cups, but Grow Compost doesn't yet accept cups, right, Margo? So the good idea of using compostable cups went away. So yeah, we could throw them in the landfill. That's better than wax cups. Wax cups aren't recyclable. They go into the landfill. But we put out the wax cups. Well, the feedback we got was pretty vicious. People said, what the hell did you do? It must be Altera's fault. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the first step of the new owners, they're going to be lousy owners. <laughs> so we said, OK. So then we went out. We bought another water fountain. We said, OK, we're going to encourage people to use the water fountain. And we said, you know, go and buy a bottle. And then people said, well, my kids need to drink. So we said, oh, God. So, <laughs> so now we're actually buying pouches that are going to be basically sold pretty much at cost. Hopefully, people will bring their reusables. But in the meantime, we said, OK, we're putting those compostable cups up there. Even though grow compost doesn't collect them, it's better than wax paper. So we have compostable cups up there again. But we really want to get to the point where we're not using cups, people are bringing their own and using it or drinking out of the fountain. But it is you know, a clear point that we tried to do the right thing environmentally. We did. When we changed, people noticed. And it necessarily wasn't the best change. So we had to adjust and react. So I, I think you're right. What can we also do educationally? Things like this. You know, Clearly, we are really trying to promote POW. If you notice, a lot of kids now are putting those POW stickers on their helmet. And people are asking, what's POW? Well, it's a great conversation. David told me that at Aspen, you actually put POW on all your uniforms. Might just talk about that. Yeah, it was about six or seven years ago. Uh, and we'd been supporting Protect Our Winters since for, for many years and done a lot of work with them. A great organization, by the way. Um, and so if you haven't joined POW yet, it's super easy. Go to protectourwinters.org and uh, 
and sign up. They're awesome. But what we did is we said, well, we want to draw attention to our environmental position to try and educate our skiers and riders uh, and start a conversation with them. So I suggested we put POW, Protect Our Winners, on the, literally on the sleeve of every uniform of every employee at Aspen Skiing Company, thousands of pieces. And so we did. So we literally wear POW on their sleeves. And the reason to do it was, number one, to uh, in staff training, to train the staff to tell them about our environmental position and POW and other things that we were doing so they'd be knowledgeable. And then have the sleeve logo, pretty big, by the way, uh, be a conversation starter. So we wanted our guests to say, well, what's that on your sleeve? You know, why, why does it say POW on your sleeve? And you know, then they, they were knowledgeable enough to have a conversation so then our guests could learn a little bit more and we could start to, to grow the movement. So uh, for like, and then uh, we had another ski area, A Basin actually, Alan Henseroth at Arapahoe Basin in Colorado called me up and said, I saw that you put that on your sleeves. Says, can we do that? And I'm going, this is not proprietary. <laughs> I would love it if every every ski resort in North America, or, you know, had POW on their sleeve, and uh, and a bunch of resorts are doing that today. So, right. other, yes, thanks. So, would Sugarbush and Altera commit to going 100% carbon neutral for energy and for other uh, resources by 2022? Just make it happen. Ex That's pretty quick. <laughs> Uh, just, no, just build it into the cost of lift tickets and other resources. We'll so pay. Maybe Thank I could start that answer if Indeed. you want, want to add to that. So uh, at Altera right now, um, I'm building a platform for sustainability, and in there are some aggressive goals about moving to, to renewable energy in our portfolio. 100% uh, as soon as we possibly can. I don't have the exact year yet, 2022. I can't promise that one. It's a little too quick. I will go to each jurisdiction, and we have a different challenge in each jurisdiction. Actually, Vermont is way further ahead than a lot of other places we do business. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Colorado and Utah, big coal states, right? Uh, in California, it's even tough, uh, although they're, they're starting to, it, the regulatory environment there is brutal to get anything changed. Um, but in Mammoth, California, uh, our largest ski area, most ski areas, ski business of any ski area we own and operate, uh, about a million, five, million, six a year, um, they've got this massive geothermal plant right adjacent to the town of Mammoth Lakes. And it exports all the energy to Southern California. And I'm going to our leaders there. I said, can't we just do a deal, the town of the ski area, with the geothermal plant right there? And they said, yeah, we're working on it really hard. We're hoping to have that happen. So they, you know, Mammoth can instantly be 100% renewable as opposed to sucking it out of the grid, which is not. So Altera is very committed to going 100% renewable. I was in Utah in the fall and met with the Rocky Mountain Power folks and uh, the Park City area in Utah. Uh, and including Deer Valley that we own there have, are going 100% renewable within the next year uh, with, with what they're buying, the power they're buying there. Uh, same in Squaw Valley, Alpine Meadows in California. The, the community is banded together. It's 100% renewable by next year there. Um, so we're, we're making strides on going to renewable, uh, you know, as quickly as we can. And I'm thinking it's probably 2025 before we get it done, but we're, we're working hard on it. So. I mean, one thing we should feel good about here in Vermont is as background, Vermont is still a regulated distribution utility state, so we can only buy from Green Mountain Power unless we went to cogeneration ourselves, which isn't practical. 
but we have probably the cleanest electrical energy in the nation. So if you look at the source of generation, it's really clean power coming out of Green Mountain. So we have to depend a little bit on what Green Mountain Power does in order for us to be 100% you know, renewable. But I mentioned the, the partnership we did with the Clean Lantern in solar. Um, we could probably express it a couple of different ways. That solar that's going into the grid is enough to run all of Mount Ellen or enough to run all of our lifts. So through those actions, you know, I think we are moving really towards that goal. Yeah. Um, I, hope, so, I hope you're not wearing a coal hat because you're a coal miner. Oh, no, it's, okay. it, it's <laughs> one of my students gave it to me. Um, so I am a high school English teacher over at Gould Academy in Bethel, Maine. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, and it's not unlike some of the ski-oriented academies of the Mad River Valley. And I was wondering, I'm making assumptions here, but looking at the audience, um, there's a demographic that's missing, and it tends to be something that I see in Bethel a lot, even with our highly populated on snow athletes. And my partner who lives in um, North Conway, I see it too when I go to Nature Conservancy meetings there in um, Mount Washington Vale, uh, trail associations. I'm just wondering how are we, or how are you getting the voice out to the younger generation? Because we're not going to be here. <laughs> they will, and I truly love them, but I also know that they'll put stickers of anything on anything if they think it's cool. So I'm just wondering, where does that cool factor stop and where does it actually take action? Um, and I'm gonna bring idea. this back to Bethel, sure. so. No, that, that's so a know. great question. I think in many ways that younger generation is actually, they don't need to be here in this room because they already get it and they're doing stuff and they're asking us to do it. But you know, I think again what I said, you know, advocating more is really using the, the vehicles that I think your generation is looking at, like Instagram. You know, we know you don't use Facebook. So, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, do a lot more on Instagram as well. No, not cool, absolutely. You know, we have a very big college population of season pass holders here. And so we know we can speak to them, we do speak to them, we do email them. And I think your, your key is they, revolutions are never started by old people, right? They're always started by young people. And so that's where this revolution is beginning. I think it's gonna continue. But Cameron, you're a professor, so tell us how to get to these youngsters. Uh, so, fantastic point, and I was actually thinking looking out here that this is a much more diverse age audience than a lot that I, I speak to, so we're making progress, excellent job at getting the young crowd out a win. Um, uh, no, I mean, look at the, all the gray hair, I see, you're right. You know? <laughs> this is the Mad River Valley. Uh, I, I think, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start with two observations. Uh, one is that what I see in, in the youth today is that that's not where the climate denier population comes from. We're doing a good job educating them, and they're asking me, like, why haven't you fixed this, Dr. Wake? You've been working on it for 30 years. Um, so I think they're already much farther ahead uh, than I was. And I think what's really important for those of us who have been warriors in the climate fight for a long time, thank you for your comments, whoever, I think it looks like he's gone now, um, uh, is that we need to find a way to support and lift up these youth leaders. So Greta Thunberg has done an incredible job and she's got a lot of uh, a press. 
there's thousands of Greta Thunbergs out there. So what are you doing to make sure you're lifting them up? And I'm purposefully not using the word empowering because they already have the power. What we need to do is allow them to, to, to use that power to drive change. And I see that generation, the younger generation, as having the political will to drive the change. It's not going to be the boomers. We, have the, we know what we have to do, but the political will has to come from the youth, and we have to do a much better job at lifting that up and supporting them. And I'll just finish by saying there's a whole bunch of climate scientists that talk about this frequently, and people are like, wow, Greta Thunberg, like she's stealing all your thunder. It's like, no. She is, we uh, are such fans of Greta and her colleagues, and I just want to see more of them, and I want to figure out ways uh, that we can actually promote them. And it's, it now has become my legacy is I'm way less about research and way more about how my students can be future leaders. Um, Lisa Lim with Vermont Ski and Ride Magazine. First of all, thank you so much, both for what you're doing on the ground and then for hosting this. This is terrific. And David, I hope you can make this a whole Altera Roadshow and take them to all your resorts. Good idea. Uh, second, we've seen, we've seen companies here, such as Burton, take pretty strong political stances. We've seen the chart that Cameron put up, and I think that this November, there's going to be a really pivotal moment on that chart. Um, David, you've spoken about the power that Altera has as a group. You're in many, many states. What actions, if any, can you take to impact the pivot that's going to happen in November with the election? You know, it's a, I'll, anyone chime in, please. The, um, we have a, <laughs> save me. I'm Canadian now. So I will tell you one thing that, that comes to mind, and, uh, and it's, it's POW-related because we have a POW person here on the stage, is that POW is tar has, a, has created the POW Action Fund. And uh, we are spreading that around. So for example, every single ICON pass holder, and there's a lot of them now in the second year, uh, as some resorts are finding out, got a free membership to protect our winners. And they're growing their membership really quickly because of our action with the ICON pass. And they're then getting those people to donate. So they're using their funds, and they've got two funds. They've got a 501c3 and a 501c4. The C3 they're using for get out the vote for 2020 in eight congressional districts that are really pivotal, pivotal to the uh, balance of control. And then they've created a 501c4, and they're actually raising funds and going to spend money uh, on advocacy to, to on climate, getting people to vote climate and backing certain candidates in eight congressional districts uh, that they see as pivotal for the 2020 election. So we are looking at Altera to try and support that effort uh, with POW right now because it's, it's, they're working hard on it and they've got a head start. So uh, we're examining that right now to see if we can get more involved. Uh, we're activating certainly the ICON pass holders and then see if we can do more. So that's one example of what I think we can do even in the short term for 2020. First, Jeff, and then Greg. Yeah, hi, I just wanted to recognize that Carrie Dolan's here in the audience. She was the co-sponsor of the climate bill that passed in the House this week. Hello, Greg. So I have a suggestion. I would like to see on the website a ride board and a ski house capabilities so that people who are down south, which I drive all the time, 
drive a lot, had a place to go at, to your different resorts and look and say, oh, this person over here, one town away, is driving up tomorrow afternoon. Maybe we could split the ride. And then you already have a bus system that runs around, have it centrally located downtown Friday nights and Sunday nights for a way home to get from the mountain to meet the people and go down. Have that on your website as an avenue. And, for, and same with the ski house. I know you need to make money on all the real estate, but there's a lot of ski houses also out there that could be part of that whole use. And that's a way to save our carbon footprint in a very easy way. And it's just a website link. You know, if I could a quick response to that. Thank you for that. Uh, I just met this afternoon with two Sugarbush management, uh, Margo and Ted. And one of the concepts that they brought up as a, as a good idea to maybe activate here is a, there's a rideshare app at ski areas. It was developed by a, a guy I know named Digi Dave, uh, Dave Amaralt. Uh, and it was launched at uh, Snowbird in Utah last year. And a few areas in Utah are using it. And he's open sourced it to allow the ski areas to, to join in. So it's, it's just one tool that looks like it's starting to grow within our industry that could absolutely get people could share rides get three or four people, you know, whatever, in a car, hey, it'll bring more people, it'll, it'll you know, reduce the, the carbon footprint of the, those people on, on transportation choice. So we're, it came up today, uh, it's a good thing that's coming, and I think it's a great idea to get something like that rolling. It's a great point, because, you know, Vermont has done a lot of really good things. I mentioned earlier in energy, we have really clean energy, relatively speaking. Transportation is the big problem in Vermont. We're a rural state. And so I would advocate for more support for Green Mountain Transit so we could have more transit all year round, right? <laughs> Seth. Uh, thank you, and thank you again for uh, putting this on. Um, so you, uh, several of you have talked about uh, what we can do that's in our uh, toolbox, and I'm also an educator. Uh, I'm a seventh grade social studies teacher, and one of the things that one of my students did, uh, they came up with an idea where every student at our school receives a reusable water bottle. So we don't sell bottled water. Um, they use their reusable water bottles, which is great. And that student won an Earth Service Award. Uh, that, was, that was great. Um, and uh, I have them contact their elected officials on the topic of their choice. I'm not trying to indoctrinate them, but uh, they contact their elected officials. The problem is that, that I see, and maybe you can help me with this, is I hate to call it this, but learned ignorance. And what it comes down to is they're hearing things, whether it be on social media, other places on the internet, from others, uh, uh, friends of theirs, um, that, and we've all heard it in the news, climate change is a hoax. Uh, we don't know what's causing it. Uh, it's just cyclical. Um, there are things that we hear all the time. Our president of the United States has come right out on the national stage saying that. And it's very difficult to teach seventh graders uh, science. I can show them your slides when they're hearing all of this in the news from elected officials, from their parents. Um, so first, I, I guess my question is uh, twofold. One, do you have any suggestions for how to combat this? And two, do you have any talking points for when you're confronted with these asinine comments <laughs> <laughs> so that you, you don't lose the fight to someone talking about uh, windmill cancer? 
I don't know. Who wants to tackle that one first? Cameron. I'll, I'll take a shot. Uh, three things uh, quickly. A, uh, the president's not a scientist, never has been, never will be. Don't listen to him on science topics. Uh, number two, 12 words, uh, 12 words to describe climate change. It's real. It's us. It's bad. Scientists agree. We can fix it. Every one of those is a complete lesson plan. That encapsulates the science of the last 30 years. And then last but not least, uh, I know that we work on this out of the University of New Hampshire. There's a NASA program called GLOBE that has developed G-L-O-B-E. You can just Google it. They've developed a whole bunch of uh, curriculum plans for high schools. And the one that I actually use, I'm almost afraid to say this, in my freshman UNH class is on the carbon cycle. You teach them about the carbon cycle and they will be able to talk circles around our president, grade seven, talking about climate science. When I have a question here from the live stream. Uh, this is from Zach Freeman uh, with Rasta. Um, he's wondering, uh, he's thinking that it's time to put pressure on industry manufacturers and industry players, partners of our organizations. What can we do to sort of pressure them? The ski industry is doing a lot. That's what he's got. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And you know, you probably have more leverage over 15 resorts than I do over one. Maybe I'll throw that question to you, David. I agree there's a really big opportunity to, to green your supply chain, so to speak, uh, if you're a company that buys a lot of things. Um, and it's more than snow cats and chairlifts, it's, it's, it's foodstuffs and you know, things every day. So uh, that was another topic I was talking to the Sugarbush team about this afternoon as well. It's like, okay, what, is that a tool in our toolbox to use our purchasing power to force our suppliers to do a better job? I mean, uh, you know, Margo was telling me how appalled we are that when we receive all the food, it's all in cardboard wrapped in plastic from the food suppliers, right? And that nobody's making a fuss. Nobody's telling them, no, you're going to bring these in reusable crates and that's it. You know, <laughs> that's the only way we'll receive our food and our supplies. You know, those kinds of opportunities are, are very much there for us. And uh, I think once we get our act together, and I think you, the act together is very much together here at Sugarbush, we can start to say to our suppliers, this is the standard that we expect. Uh, and if you can't meet that standard, we'll buy it from somebody else. So I, I think it's a great point from the, the live stream. Thank you for that comment. And uh, we're going to focus on that in the coming months and years, for sure. Heather, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to add that um, you know, the Nature Conservancy, as a global organization, has taken a lot of flack over the years for working with organizations like Dow Chemical, at Walmart, and Amazon to improve their supply chain, um, to make their products more sustainable, to make their practices more sustainable. And it's something that we see as one of, being, one of the biggest leverage points that we have. I mean, we are a, a market-based economy. We need to have um, intervention points that can create big change. And by working with those companies, that's where you really get that leverage. So we would be happy to help you with that work. Cool. And, and you know, the other thing is it's the consumer has great power. I'll give you an example. There was a young woman who actually has a water business that is actually putting water in recyclable containers as opposed to plastic containers. So she came to us and she said, you know, we'd love it if you could sell it at Sugarbush. Well, the problem you have is all ski resorts are either Coke resorts or Pepsi resorts. And when you sign up with them, they get an exclusivity. So they're not going to allow a third-party vendor to come in. But we did talk to our current vendor. And interestingly enough, they said, you know, we're getting a lot of pressure from our consumers. 
So they are now looking at coming up with an alternative to the plastic bottle. They're not out there yet, but that type of pressure, I think, from both these suppliers like us, but also the consumers, is the way you really do change behavior. Yeah, hi, Finn Galloway Kane. Thank you very much. Um, it was mentioned earlier that Altera owns a heli skiing operation. Um, and given the massive carbon footprint you know, per customer in that business, I was wondering what Altera is doing to minimize its carbon footprint in that part of its business. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, helicopter skiing is, a, is the ultimate skier experience, it's also the ultimate carbon footprint per skier. So, you know, and we run 11 operations in British Columbia uh, in spectacular areas, and we haul a lot of jet fuel and diesel fuel into those wildernesses. Um, so it's, it's embarrassing, you know. So fortunately, the CMH team is, like, really anxious to start to fix up their own operations. Uh, there's no such thing as an electric helicopter that will haul people, so that one's probably not going to happen soon. However, the lodges are the, the big energy user. And so we have one uh, lodge now that's operating on a microhydro plant because there's uh, a water source nearby about a kilometer away from the lodge and covers 90% of its electricity. Uh, we're putting another microhydro plant in at the, at the Caribou Lodge this summer. Uh, and we've got a, a roadmap to like sort of do one every year or two to convert those lodges to, to hydropower. Because right now a lot of them are operating on diesel. So there, there's a good strong movement to try and fix up that operation. The helicopters, you know, we have to look uh, at other parts of our company, frankly, to offset, you know, the, the carbon footprint of, of the helicopters. Because uh, we're not going to be able to do it in an operation, and uh, it's still something that people love to do, including me. And uh, you know, it's it's got a big carbon footprint, but it's also kind of the dream pinnacle of our sport. So we don't want to shut the company down. We just want to do the best we can at, at greening that operation. So it's a fair point you made. One of, one of the things that Pow has on the website is a carbon calculator, and it can actually show you the the, the amount of carbon pounds that are emitted by driving a car from Boston to Sugarbush, flying you know, from Boston to Denver, et cetera. So it's a really interesting thing. If you haven't seen it, I'd recommend going. Cameron? Uh, yeah, um, I, I'm going to push back a little bit. So I've done the helicopter skiing. If you haven't gone, like, go now. It's fantastic. Uh, but maybe we could start a new movement, like friends don't let friends go helicopter skiing. And I would, I, I would have my, as my display of uh, Aaron right here, and also Jeremy Jones, who all does his backcountry skiing now without helicopters. And so, yeah, do the helicopter thing. Uh, but there's also a lot of, you can learn how to earn your, your, your vertical, and it's just as much fun. So, no, that's an easy target. That was an easy target. <laughs> so if I can segue quickly from there, there's one way that we can get a new person into the top. And so I'm going to, I've been called out a few times for being a millennial. So I'm going to embrace that. And everybody get out your phone, if you can, out of your pocket. I know you're usually supposed to keep it on silent in your pocket. Um, and we're just going to, this is pledging that you're going to vote in the election. Um, a big piece is that people don't get out and vote. We may all believe it, but then the day comes and you don't actually do it. So um, if you can text ACT for POW to 52886 to pledge that you're going to vote. And I'm going to do it too. So, yep. 
So what you're going to do is um, the, instead of putting a phone number, you're going to do 52886. That's your phone number. So you're, and then in the text message, you're just going to write act for pal. Uh, so thank, thank you for your comments. Everybody's doing the act of pal right now. I'm going to do it in a minute. Um, uh, it's absolutely important for Washington to act, but I would say having been in this battle for 30 years, is that it's a very uh, dangerous strategy to think that that's all we need to do. It's absolutely what we have to do, and especially here in New England, we need to come up with the examples to show how it is we transition to net zero emissions economy and one where we have a fantastic quality of life where we have great jobs, where we have income equality, where we have sustainability, not just from an environmental perspective, but from jobs in the economy and from a whole range of different social indicators. So Washington, yes, but be the change that you want to see right now. Amen. Well here. said. You know, I think on that note, Cameron, that's, that's a perfect ending. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Great scheme with you today. Cameron, love your your scientific facts and that approach. Heather, thank you, and glad we learned more about the great work you're doing here. And David, thanks so much for coming all the way from Denver and telling us a lot more about what you are intending to do as well. And thank all of you for attending. It was a great conversation. It's fact time. According to NOAA, the 10 warmest years on record globally since 1880 have all occurred since 2005, with eight of those years occurring since 2010. So, over 140 years, the warmest eight years have occurred in the last 10 years. We're setting global records for warming again and again and again right now. And as Dr. Cameron Wake said, it's real, it's us. Scientists agree, it's bad. We can fix it. Facts matter, folks. Insist on them. by Adam Levy. Toss me those five-star Apple Podcast ratings if you want to be a helper. And if you're a longtime listener who is now grumpy at me for featuring this topic, take a deep breath. Know that this is newsworthy regardless. You made it this far into the episode for some reason, and I promise the next episode will not be on this topic. You will be okay. Follow on Instagram at Wintry Mixcast or find the show on Facebook or Twitter. Leave the pod a voicemail or text at 802-560-5003, and good chance I'll get it into an episode. If you talked at the panel but didn't hear yourself in the episode, I'm sorry, but you got edited out for time. Stick around for after the beep, and maybe you'll hear your point made briefly. Goodbye. As a state representative, the, we oftentimes refer to uh, the house of, uh, at the state house here in Vermont as the people's house. And we're only as effective as when we hear your voices. 
According to her, the biggest problem we have at this point is wealth inequality. And nobody wants to talk about that, um, just like nobody wanted to talk about climate change a few years back in the ski industry. And I think it's something we have to address. There are huge problems out there, and I'd like to stay hopeful, but um, when, when three people in the United States have more money than, you know, 98% of the rest of the country, there's something really wrong. To represent Ryan properly, we should include the fact that he was very passionate as a young man, self-directed, about environmental sustainability. You know, climate change could be just, oh, well, that's what happens. But climate crisis, I, th I just think that we need to think of the language we use to describe what's really happening. And climate change kind of glosses over some people who aren't, you know, we're the choir here, I think. So I just, I'd like to think about, get the brilliant minds thinking about the language we use to communicate the problem. If you look historically at, you were talking before about revolutions. So the other way we get out of revolutions is state by state. If you, if you look at um, voting rights, if you look at segregation, if you look at labor laws, all that happened at the state level, not at the federal level. So it really matters what Vermont does. It matters a lot. Teach underprivileged Boston youth how to ski and snowboard, and Sugarbush has actually been so great in partnering with our organization over the last few years. This is for when? Right here. Yes, sorry, I'll stand up. Uh, what's the long-term plan with GMX if we can't get the... With what? With the Green Mountain Express. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, if, if there's Actually, no this, this goes back to my weather volatility. We had a really severe lightning strike on the Green Mountain Express this summer. Basically knocked out all the circuitry. Uh, it's been a nightmare trying to repair it. We still have one component. We can't get there. A, B, and B can't figure it out. Palma can't figure it out. And so we had to make the reluctant decision to run it on diesel, which is not something we want to do at all. But because it has two diesel engines and it's such an important lift to Mount Ellen, we had to do it. So we're hopefully at a point where the, the insurance company is going to agree that it can't be fixed and they're going to allow us to put in a new drive. So that'll go in this summer? It, it, it will go as soon as we get permission to get a new drive. Thank you. Yep. But my concern is what is the impact that we just had on the environment by building this really great home? What is the impact that we have by putting in all of the solar panels, by buying the electric cars? Is, is our return on our investment going to happen soon enough to really make any kind of impact? Uh, it's going to be a few years, maybe 10. Uh, so that's, that's good. But I would argue more importantly is that the way you get that return on investment ROI, climatologist talking economics, be careful, um, uh, is uh, that you are serving as a wonderful example and you're the, the leading edge, right? You're the early adopters. So if it's not perfect now, it's okay. It's the glide path that we need to be on. Uh, my parents used to talk to me about uh, how FDR used to have his fireside chats. He wasn't, he was telling, he was talking to people, telling them, hey, you know, you may not like this, but this is what we have to do. I think it was probably back 
when, when World War II was, 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 was the big topic. Mitch McConnell, you, do something. Wow, an hour and a half. You're still here. Congrats. Uh, episode 83 coming up will be a travel episode from Powderhorn out near Grand Junction. And uh, in the archive, some other stuff. We've got Mike Hayes, the uh, Ben and Jerry's uh, global marketing director, who also skis backcountry quite a bit, uh, which is number 79. Uh, 77 was the Carmichael's from Steamboat. 78 was that I-70 episode. 81 was some crazy times at Outdoor Retailer. And uh, you can keep going back and back and back. Follow the uh, podcast on Instagram at Wintry Mix cast.